All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and once again find Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and our text this week will be focused on verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, and I just want to begin by reading those verses. As usual, we'll pause and pray and ask God's blessing upon him, on them, and then we will walk through this. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's now pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father of glory, we pray that through the Lord Jesus Christ and by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and behold the riches of your glorious inheritance for the saints in Christ Jesus. Let us see the wonder and the beauty and the glory of it. Give us foretastes of glory divine by your spirit. May it affect us so deeply that we begin to purify ourselves here and pursue holiness and pursue the resurrection from the dead. We ask this in your son's precious name and for his sake, amen. Notice the heading in probably most of your Bibles, especially if you're using one of ours over verse 18, that of course was not in the original text, that's just something that the translators do to help us out as they're breaking up sections here. They put future glory, future glory, it has a nice ring to it, actually, and that's what these verses are all about, verses 18 through 25, future glory, actually it runs all the way through verse 30. This future glory is the theme of these verses. And Paul is discussing here, it begins in verse 18 when he talks about the fact that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. That word revealed, underlying 
Greek word is apocalypsis. The reason I say that is because we're familiar with that word, right? We use it as apocalypse. And most of the time, unfortunately, in our culture, we think about apocalypse, we think about zombies and uh, destruction to the modern world and us running around with machine guns and other things. But that's not the idea of the word. It means to reveal something, to disclose something, to show something, to let it be seen. That's what Paul's talking about. It's the future time when the glory that God has promised for his children and for his creation will be revealed. It will be seen by us. And he ends it in verse 30, this whole section Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, this is the future glory. As we've talked about the last two weeks, looking at verse 16 and 17, that if we are, we have the Spirit, then we're children of God. In verse 17, if we're children, then heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of future glory, if you wanted to summarize it. In these verses, Paul calls this our hope in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope of future glory and receiving our inheritance from God, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience because it's future. It will be revealed to us in the future. It's our future glorious inheritance in the saints that comes from God that in many ways, as we saw, is God himself in all his glory. That we are fellow heirs with Christ of all this glory and that we will be glorified ourselves in the creation upon which we live will be glorified. It's a future glory It's our hope. Remember the definition of that word in the Bible? It's not wishful thinking. Our hope is our confident expectation of future glory. That's our hope. That's what Paul is describing and guaranteeing for the children of God in these verses. Guaranteed glory, so much so, that he can speak about it to us as though it's already happened. Again, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. So that if you're a child of God and you're justified, you're glorified, not yet, but you are, but not yet, but you will be, you see. It's confident expectation a future glory for the children of God. That's what this section is about. As Newton wrote in Amazing Grace, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures, you see. It's promised to us, guaranteed for us. And in these verses, verses 18 to 25, and then, even beyond probably into verse 
uh, 26 to 30, God is inviting us as his children. Listen to this now. In these verses, God is inviting his children to ponder this future glory, to think about it, to reason through it, until you come to the same conclusion the Apostle Paul did in verse 18. As he reasoned about this future glory, as he thought about this future glory that's going to be revealed, he says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Do you see that? He considered it. He thought about this so much. He he pondered this glory so much in light of his present circumstances which were often brutal things we wouldn't want to walk through the intense suffering Paul did but he came to this conclusion that this glory is so marvelous so wonderful so great that it's not even worth comparing to whatever you have to walk through here God's inviting his children think about this inviting us to meditate on future glory, our hope, what it will be like. And as we ponder, we pray, right? We pray as Paul taught us in Ephesians 1, verses 17 to 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God wants you to know it in your heart and believe it, capture it by faith, you see, and live for it. He wants it so much that this is what Paul is praying for those Ephesian believers, oh God, let them see this glory. Let them know this glory. If they capture a taste of it, if they capture a a faith-filled vision of this glory and what they have in store for them, it will change everything in their lives. We talked about our holiness earlier. And the Apostle John, when he talks about the return of Christ and the glory that will happen when we see the glorified Son of Man, when we see Jesus and all his glory, he'll make us like himself in glory. And John says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself now as he is pure. If you want God to produce in you holiness and you want to pursue holiness, then think about your eternal future glory. That's what John is saying. Because as you see it and as you see the glory in Christ and get a vision for the holiness of that glory, you yourself will be purifying yourself as he is pure. You will pursue holiness in this life. That's how often you can tell the people who really have this hope of future glory, I mean really have the hope of it in their minds and hearts and know what is the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints because they're holy people now. They're set apart people now and it's visible in their lives. Romans chapter 8 
invites us in. God invites us in through these verses to ponder this future glory. And in these verses, Paul helps us avoid what are some common pitfalls in our thinking about our salvation. In these verses, Paul helps us avoid some common pitfalls we all tend to slip into when we are thinking about our salvation. Remember, Paul began this letter in Romans saying that this is about the gospel and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So this is a book about our salvation in and through Jesus Christ, right? Well, there are common pitfalls that we can all fall into when we're thinking about our salvation. Let me just number those and I'll show you where Paul helps us overcome those, okay? First one is this. We tend to overemphasize the present aspects of our salvation to the exclusion of this future aspect of salvation, the glory that's going to be revealed to us. In other words, we tend to focus a lot on what Paul has taught about justification as an example, which is wonderful, and it needs emphasis, and it's beautiful doctrine that you're right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have forgiveness of sins. Beautiful. You stand in right relationship to God. But if all we emphasize is our justification to the exclusion of glorification, then we will not be all that God intends us to be as Christian people in this salvation. Or we tend to emphasize our sanctification, which we should. Our pursuit of holiness, our saying no to sin, our putting to death the deeds of the body, but almost to the exclusion of our glorification, our future hope, our inheritance. When we do that, we forget that Salvation can be broken up in some ways by time. In other words, you have been saved and you are being saved and you will be saved one day. You're saved, not yet, but you're saved. You see? Justification When moment you believed, Paul taught this, proclaimed this so true. When you believed in Jesus, he declared you're righteous. So you can say, I remember the day I was saved X number of months, years ago. But in sanctification, what we learn is that we still have indwelling sin and so we have the Holy Spirit within us and looking to Christ, of course, and... uh, In response to justification, we are now pursuing holiness and thereby the Spirit working in us, Christ-likeness and conviction and then repentance and more faith and more pursuit of Christ and holiness. We are being saved. But that's not the end of our salvation. The future aspect of our salvation, when our salvation will be full and finally complete, is that glorification. That's why these verses are so important, don't you see? We talked about justification, we talked about sanctification. Paul's like, we need to also emphasize glorification. 
our inheritance, our future glory. Look at verse 23. This is interesting. Paul says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Interesting word could actually be translated the foretaste of things to come. What is the song I grew up singing? Foretaste of glory divine, uh, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior eternally blessed or something. It's a foretaste of what we have. The Spirit gives us these foretastes of glory, of present righteousness, of love for Jesus, of love for one another. What it's going to be like, listen, in perfection in glory. It's that future aspect in which the first fruits now will come into fruition at that point. And we will be then what we are called to be, glorified people of God, you see. But then he says in verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Wait a minute, what? As we wait... For the adoption of sons? As one of my children always says, huh? When you say something they don't understand. Huh? What about verse 16 and 17? Aren't we now sons and children of God? Thereby fellow heirs of Christ? What is that all about? You are... But there's this one final stage that God will usher in on the last day through Christ. And that is, as he says in verse 24, he clarifies, doesn't he? Or actually it's uh, verse 23. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, what is he referring to? The redemption of our bodies. That's glorification. That's the resurrection from the dead. That is when we see Christ, he makes us like himself. Then this adoption, salvation thing that we enjoy now, presently, will also come to pass in the future. One thing, as you study any form of salvation or eschatology in the doctrine of last things, then remember this statement, okay? Already, not yet. Already, not yet. Yours in possession, yours in position. God has done these things for you in salvation and not yet, but he has and he will. You see how that works? We're getting right now the first fruits of the glory that's going to be revealed. Do you know that? That what the watching world is supposed to see in the church filled with Jesus Christ is foretastes, snippets of what it's going to be in perfection and glory, though it's imperfect now. In glory, this is it. We're experiencing it now. The last things were inaugurated with Christ and begun with the Holy Spirit when he was poured out at Pentecost. That began... 
the last things that will find their full and final consummation in the return of Christ and the glorification of his people. All of our eschatology is not waiting for it to happen. Some of it is happening and has happened in us and will continue to happen. That's why he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Back up in verse 11, Paul says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's glorification. You have the first fruits of that spirit now. You've experienced a spiritual resurrection. You are a new person in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. You're part of the new creation, creation realities you read about in Revelation 21 and 22. It's already happened within you. And one day we'll bring in this future glory to its final consummation. Second, We can be prone to over-personalize and over-individualize our salvation. And Paul helps us in these verses with that. What do I mean by that? Well, we believe that a person must have a personal relationship with God through personal faith in Jesus Christ. I can't believe for you. You being a member of a particular church cannot save you. The relationship of the fellow church members to God cannot bring you into that right relationship with God. Being born into the right family cannot bring you into right relationship with God. There is an individual aspect to salvation to which each person must repent and believe in Jesus, then they're brought into a personal relationship with God the Father. They have their own, so to speak, relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's powerful, that's beautiful. That should be talked about. But friends, we can become so individualized in this that we forget we share this future inheritance with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of the children of God are heirs with Christ. Do you see that? So that as you view the people, even in your own local church, you see them as fellow heirs with you of the glory that's going to be revealed. If you scan through these verses, 18 through 30, you'll notice a lot of the pronouns he uses, or all of them, frankly, are us and we. And don't think that it's any coincidence that when Jesus taught us to pray, he used things like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Friends, you would do well even in your private prayers at times, when you pray through that Lord's Prayer, to use those plural pronouns, including in your mind all the people of God, praying for the church universal. Don't we affirm the Apostles' Creed? The holy universal church, we change that from Catholic because Catholic means universal, but it throws people off. 
doesn't mean the Roman Pope Catholic Church. It means the universal church. This is what we believe in. And that they're all the children of God and the creation itself is even waiting eagerly for the revealing of all of the sons of God in glory. Do you know this will help you probably more than any other doctrine, this will help you pursue unity in a church where there is bound to be people who don't see things exactly the way you see them, who sometimes rub you wrong or sin against you or do or say things you wish they wouldn't, if you could recognize them the way God does. In the fact that he is not finished with them yet, that one day they will be glorified with you and any perceived imperfection you see in them will be changed. It will help you. See them for who God declares them to be, for who God is making them to be, and for whom God will one day complete in them. We're all going there together, you see. We're all going to be glorified together. This is why Jesus said, or prayed rather, in John 17, verses 22 to 23. He says, the glory, he's praying to the Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You see that? I give them my glory so that we're all glorified together, fellow heirs with Christ. And the glimpses and the foretastes of that glory are right now in the unification of the Christian church, people from all different backgrounds and histories and stages of sanctification and understandings, all of them together, the unified people of Jesus Christ who are justified, being sanctified, and one day will be glorified. We tend to individualize our salvation. This comes to its fullest expression when people don't even come to a local church. They live in a city with multiple local church, can't find one that they could humble themselves enough to be a part of. You see, that's wrong. When you talk to Christians who do that, don't go, oh, well, that's just the way they do it. No, it's wrong. And if they're Christians and they're professing Christians and you're their friend and you have that opportunity, rebuke them for it. You're a member of the body of Christ, bound together, you see, eternally. <laughs> but again, don't worry, I said, he's gonna make us all what we should be in the kingdom. You're gonna, we're gonna be much more livable with people in our future glory. Thirdly, we tend to over-spiritualize our salvation, and I think this is the heart of this passage. We tend to over-spiritualize our salvation as though there's no physical elements to it. This passage teaches against that. The first way is, of course, we've talked about it a little bit, 
that we are to receive glorified bodies. Friends, you are a human being. When God created human beings, he created them not just with that immaterial soul or spiritual part of them, but with a body in which and for which it was designed to glorify God. This is why Paul will say, glorify God with your body. That's how you you glorify God. We put to death the deeds of the body that are bad by the Spirit so that we can live in our bodies to the glory of God. Your salvation is not complete when you die and your soul goes to heaven. Just as right now we are eagerly waiting for the adoption of sons, meaning the redemption of our bodies, so too the souls in heaven are awaiting the last day when Christ promised, I will raise them up on the last day. Then when they're in their bodies and they're glorified, they will be fully, truly, perfectly glorified humans. See that? You're a human being. Do you like being a human being? Or are you one of these strange people who want to identify as an animal now and dress like a dog and walk around or whatever? We're human beings. It would be unnatural for us to be without our bodies, but don't worry. God is going to glorify us and the fallenness of your body, you don't know what it is to be fully human because you live in a fallen body. But one day, when your body is glorified, now you'll know what it is to be, listen, really fully, truly alive without the presence of sin, both incorruptible and immortal. That's the glory. That's what's coming for us, those glorified bodies. But it's even more than that. See, we tend to over-spiritualize salvation and we forget that God has a plan to glorify his creation as well. To bring everything full circle from Genesis 1 to Genesis 21 and 22. To bring everything full circle, which would mean human beings on earth in glory forever and ever and ever where the devil cannot interrupt it. That, my friends, is the plan. You're not, when you, listen, we don't graduate out of our bodies, make it into heaven, and somebody hands us a harp one day and say, okay, here's your cloud, strum this harp on that cloud forever and ever. Or stay in this place called heaven. Friends, what God has a plan for is the creation itself. Did you notice that? Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and listen to this, and obtain the freedom of of the glory of the children of God. Do you enjoy creation? There's much in it to enjoy, isn't there? 
many beautiful elements of creation that we enjoy, but we have no understanding of a glorified creation. You haven't seen anything yet. If you think this is good, this creation now, notice how Paul personifies creation. You know what I mean by that? It means it's like creation itself has a personality and it's groaning right now and crying out in pain like a woman in labor over its corruption. Over all of the problems within it, right? He says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It was subjected at the fall. Do you remember this in Genesis 3.17? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is why we have no understanding of what a perfect creation is because we live in a fallen creation that is actually growing increasingly worse and worse and worse. Paul says in verse 22, this is something we know. It's easy observable. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. How do we know this, Paul? Well, look around. Can't you see it? Can't you see the death and the disease? Can't you see the earthquakes and the wildfires, the tornadoes, the tsunamis, the viruses, the death, the destruction it brings? All of it says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way I made it. This is a result of sin. This is what sin does. It ruins everything. It's a reason you pick a nice day to go fishing, but you can't make it 15 minutes because mosquitoes are sucking at your face. <laughs> Sin ruins everything. Nothing's perfect. Some of you are going to go hunting this year. You know where I'm going with this. I always have to throw in one fall season hunting joke slash jab because I don't hunt. Not that I'm against hunting, but I don't understand the desire to want to do it. I could. It's not an issue of can or can't. It's will or won't. It's what I want to do or not want to do. You think about those poor deer and elk right now. (laughs) Oh, God's beautiful creation. Enjoying it. And one day in the near future, whammo! bullet, arrow, funk. And the sad thing is, many of those poor deer and elk won't die. They'll run off, groaning as a woman, having labor, waiting for that man, or now woman, surprisingly, come along, got him, Buford, there, let's go put him down, right? No offense, I'm just kidding, guys. But think about that. And when you do that this year, when you do it and he's crying and you gotta kill him, know this. That's not the way it's supposed to be. 
You're partaking in something that is part of the fallen world. Not in a sinful way. It's okay. God said this is okay. So go for it and we need you to do it because I don't want to hit deer on the side of the road. But know that any kind of death and pain, any kind of trauma, any kind of natural disaster, any kind of imperfection was not a part of the original creation. And friends, when you get beyond Revelation 21 and beyond, it will not be a part of that ever again. Those are all part of this time. It's all part of the curse. Sin brought about all of this mess but in the same breath that God subjected the creation to futility in Genesis 3, in the very same breath, friends, he made a promise. He made a promise that even through the pain of childbirth, one day he would send his promised one, his son, who himself would crush the serpent's head and reverse the effects of the fall and bring in a new creation where those things don't exist. Remember this in Genesis 3, 14 and 15? Above all the beasts of the field, he's talking to the devil, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now notice this, in hope. How did he subject it? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It was the plan from right then on. Actually, it was the plan way before that, but was put into effect at the fall. God made that promise. That's the way your whole Bible is laid out. Following that promise. That's the way you read Bible from cover to cover. You're following the promise that God made to send that one. And now that he has sent that one, Jesus Christ, we are waiting for him to fulfill all of those wonderful, glorifying promises. Colossians verse, chapter one, verses 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, listen, not just his people, but all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And in a moment, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table and we're gonna remember that cross and the blood of that cross. Friends, that is not just paying the price for the sins of your soul. It's through that cross that God is going to fulfill this plan to bring in all that future glory that he wants us looking towards and living for and hoping for and waiting for, you see. It's all through the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? No wonder Paul said, I declared to preach nothing, to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified because in that we can summarize everything of what God has done, is doing, and will do to save us and this creation from the effects of sin. Until then, verse 25, we wait. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That is endurance, perseverance, even in the face of suffering because we know what's coming. We wait for it with patience and we pray with the songwriter, come my Lord, 
no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for we know thy power will keep us till we're home with thee at last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness and your future glory. Let us live for it this week and be delighted in it, sacrifice for it, prepare for it. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.